You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. We have reached the end of our series about the goodness of God this morning. Uh, And to close this series out, we're going to look at a part of the Bible uh, that is simultaneously some of the hardest stuff to read and some of the most hopeful. Uh, I'm talking about the book of Lamentations. And so if you have Bibles, you can make your way to Lamentations. That's a, I guess that's a sneezing type word. That's a, yeah, okay. Uh, Lamentations 3, so uh, verses 19 through 33, page 688 is where you can find, uh, find that text today. But Lamentations, uh, if you're not familiar with it, is filled with unfathomable sorrow and despair on both a personal and a national level. Uh, It's detailing the destruction of Jerusalem, God's holy city, and all of the atrocities that accompany that. And the destruction of Jerusalem in a way that we really can't comprehend because of our cultural divide from this, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem creates a moral and theological crisis for God's people. These are God's chosen holy people. This is the city where God made his own presence dwell in the temple with his people. Uh, This is the city where God promised a king would always reign on David's throne for all of time. And now here it is, falling to the Babylonians. But Lamentations, and we'll see this in our text this morning, Lamentations is not without hope. This man who has seen affliction, that's how he describes himself at the beginning of chapter 3, I am the man who has seen affliction. He finds hope in the midst of some of the worst suffering that he or the people of God have ever experienced. He finds actually what God's people in every era have found. That no matter what kind of suffering you're experiencing, and though it's incredibly difficult to see at times, God's goodness does not cease when we suffer. That God's goodness is not just something that's working when we're comfortable, when our lives are easy and going well, but that God really is good to those who suffer. So this morning, let's read a portion of Lamentations, and then let's see how this afflicted man fights to see the goodness of God in the very midst of suffering. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Lamentations chapter 3, and I'm going to begin there in verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from the heart, 
or grieve the children of man. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Guide us, we ask, by your word and spirit this morning, Father, that in your light we may see light, that in your truth we may find freedom, and that in your will we might discover your peace. And we pray all of this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to use Lamentations chapter 3 and really what is, I would say, the hard-fought experiential wisdom of this man who has seen affliction to consider some invitations that God holds out to us in our suffering. Uh, What is God inviting us to when we suffer? That's one way we could look at this. And how do these invitations actually serve to display his goodness in our suffering? So let's walk through some of these invitations together. First, Suffering is an invitation to recall the true story of the world. Suffering is an invitation to recall the true story of the world. Uh, I recently watched a documentary series, a short series on the FLDS, uh, Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. It's an offshoot, an even more cultish offshoot uh, of the Mormon religion that practices polygamy and whose leaders have been found of some incredibly evil and horrible things. One of the the fascinating parts of this documentary is when the interviewers ask survivors or their family members why they didn't leave sooner. Like, why why did you stay in this group for so long? Why didn't you recognize that what was going on around you was so wrong? And person after person shared that it was because they were so immersed in it and so formed by it that, that actually being part of that group, the FLDS, and its teachings and practices had isolated them and blinded them to everything else. And so, not that you would ever in a million years wish these evils on anyone, but it was only after something especially horrible happened to someone in their own family or someone in their own immediate circle that things were disrupted enough, that their view was disrupted enough and forced them to reconsider, man, maybe this is wrong. Maybe something is horrible here. Maybe something's not right. Suffering disrupts the norms and the rhythms of our lives. And and we tend to only see the negative of that. We we often see that as, as a negative thing. We're trekking along in our lives. Things are going okay, good enough. And then here comes this massive disruption. An illness, a death, a loss of a job or a home, something like that. And they are disruptions. They are disruptions. They, they do throw us off. The question is, where might we actually need to be disrupted? Where might we actually need to be disrupted? There are often things about the norms and the routines of our lives that are backward. And we've grown so used to it, so accommodating of those things, that we've actually, over time, been formed in a counterfeit story of the world. That's some of what's actually happening here in in Lamentations. Israel, the northern kingdom, and then Judah, the southern kingdom, they had become way too comfortable with idolatry. Some of them had had rejected God outright. Others of them had started to blend the worship of God with the worship of other false gods and idols. And the scary part is that they had actually really latched onto and embraced something close to the truth. God had promised centuries earlier to establish Jerusalem as his city and to make his presence dwell there with his people. And Judah, especially the southern kingdom, they really latched on to that promise. This is God's city. God dwells here. We're in on that. God had also promised, though, that if his people rejected him, he would send them into exile. 
that, that he would raise up another nation and allow that nation to conquer them. And that Israel, that Jerusalem, would then become an object of horror and ridicule and mockery. Judah forgot that part. They forgot that part. And over four centuries, the people built up this really arrogant and false sense of security. Jerusalem will never fall. We're fine. Our idolatry must not be that bad. God must not care that much. And then Babylon lays siege and the people begin to starve. It's a disruption of Armageddon proportions for the people of God. And it forces them, like it would any of us, to reconsider. It forces them to wake up to the counterfeit story that they've been living in. Now, it is beyond painful to do that. And Lamentations is nothing if not an honest and actually really graphic description of just how painful it is. But that pain and the intensity of it, the disruption, is actually an invitation for them to recall the true story and to live in light of it. So look there again, the verse we read, verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He has to call it to mind, this man who's seen affliction. He has to call it back to mind. And what does he recall? That the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, that his mercy never comes to an end, that his mercies are new every morning. And then he says there, great is your faithfulness. Did you know that's where this verse came from in the Bible? We sing sometimes a song based on that verse called Great is Thy Faithfulness. We stitch this verse, the mercy's new every morning, we stitch that onto a pillow at grandma's house. And we forget that a few verses before this and a few verses after this, parents are starving to the point that they are eating their own children to survive. It does not seem like the kind of moment in context where you would find incredible words of hope. And yet, here they are. Why? Why? It's because when he's forced to wake up to the true story of the world, he wakes up to the whole story of the world. That conquering and exile is actually not the end for the people of God. That the God who established Jerusalem, that the God who is now giving Jerusalem over to the Babylonians, is the same God of steadfast love and mercy. And this is not going to be the end of God's love for his people He is going to send them into exile, just like he promised he would do. But he's also going to bring them back. There will be a king on David's throne, just like God promised. There is a hope. There is a future. And at the end of the day, verse 24, this man writes, The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my portion. He has not forsaken me. He has not cast me off. He is actually my inheritance, and I will gain him forever. Even though it's hard to see right now. Like this afflicted man, see in your suffering an invitation to recall the true story of the world. The the painful disruptions of your life, which let's be honest, sometimes the painful disruptions then become the painful new norms. And for Israel, it was 70 years in exile. It wasn't a quick season, so to speak. It was a new norm for 70 years. But this is an opportunity to break free of the counterfeit story that we've been formed in and actually to live in the true one. So that's one invitation here. Second, second, suffering is also an invitation to cleanse your palate. To cleanse your palate. Uh, we titled this series, if you've been with us, you probably heard this and picked up on this, uh, after a line that comes from Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. 
There's an experiential element to trusting in the goodness of God. We're meant to taste it, as the psalmist says. But we only really taste it, we only really come to appreciate the taste of God's goodness if we have something to compare it against, if we have something to to hold it up against. This afflicted man here in Lamentations 3 also describes tasting something. We read it there in verse 19. He says, the wormwood and the gall. The wormwood and the gall. These are incredibly bitter tastes. Wormwood is a a plant uh, that's often used in scripture and other literature for sorrow and despair because of the bitterness of its taste. Gall is bile, digestive fluid, also not pleasant to taste. No one's like, mmm, reflux. Let's try that one again. That meal was so good, I want to taste it some more. No one says that. But how much more, how much more do we appreciate sweet and pleasant tastes if we have actually known bitter ones? And let me suggest to us this morning that you and I have warped palates and our palates become warped and can become warped over and over again in our lives. And actually, one specific way this applies to the vast majority of us in the room is that we live in the suburbs. Hang with me. Hang with me. I'm not asking anybody to move this morning, so hang with me. There are many benefits, many gifts of God that are evident in suburban life. But here's what I will say. The suburbs are actually engineered to insulate you from as much suffering as possible. They're built that way. They're built for comfort. They're built for convenience. They're built to actually revolve around you. And they are built to hide you and I from just how normal and constant immense suffering and immense injustice actually is in the world. Like we are the anomaly in the history of humanity if we live in the suburbs. Other people, other places see the immensity and the constancy of suffering way more than most of us do. So it's not that we don't suffer in the suburbs. We, we do. It's just that when we do, we tend to be way more surprised. When my neighbor a couple years ago OD'd and died, I was way more surprised than that than maybe, for example, Anthony and Jenna would be, who live in Allison Hill, when their neighbor OD'd and died. You might be more surprised to hear that my neighbor died than maybe their neighbor did. We, we are more in the suburbs insulated from suffering, and actually that numbs us to everything. That numbs us to everything. It dulls our taste buds. In, in crafting lives to intentionally avoid the bitterness of the wormwood and the gall, we actually become less able to taste and appreciate the sweetness of God's goodness. So rather than tasting both the suffering and the salvation of this life that consists of both the already of the kingdom of God and the not yet of the kingdom of God, rather than knowing what bitterness really is and knowing therefore what sweetness really is, it all just kind of becomes milk toast. We think of our lives of comfort and ease. We think of this, this life that we live this relatively easy as being a gift of God's goodness. But how much do we actually really know the goodness of God? How much do we really know it? Johnny Erickson Tata, who has suffered more than many, most in her life, she writes this, it isn't the hurts, blows, and bruises that rob us of the freshness of Christ's beauty in our lives. More likely, it is careless ease empty pride, earthly preoccupations, and too much prosperity that will put layers of dirty film over our souls. And so when suffering comes, because we are not 
fully insulated from it, and we never can be no matter how much we try to engineer our lives that way. When suffering comes, see it as an opportunity to cleanse and sharpen your palate. You, you really are taste, invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. So don't deny that the bitter is awful. Don't pretend that you like the taste of bile and wormwood. But having a palate that knows the bitter means your palate is that much more sharpened to know the sweet too. Third, third, suffering is an invitation to deeper communion. Deeper communion. Look again at verses 25 and 26. The Lord is what? Good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And you're hearing there the repetition of the word good. How is this afflicted man speaking here so confidently about good things from God in the midst of the kind of suffering that Lamentations actually describes? It's because he's learned that there's a deeper kind of intimacy, a deeper kind of communion, a deeper experience of the nearness of God that is held out, that is offered to those who suffer. We sang about it this morning from Psalm 130, to wait on the Lord, I will wait for you. That's what the, this man in Lamentations 3 is talking about. To wait on the Lord is not passive. It's not passive. Real patience never is. It's an active, engaged kind of seeking from the soul. In moments when, you, when you're wondering where God is and, and wondering why he's not intervening, waiting means that we look. Waiting means that we fix our eyes and that we watch for what God will do. And in the waiting and in the seeking, we accept this invitation from God into a deeper and more meaningful relationship with him. And Jordan mentioned the Psalms this morning. The Psalms speak of this all the time. All the time. Psalm 46, for example, God is a very present help in trouble. A very present help in trouble. Apart from suffering in our lives, if we lived a completely, not that this is possible, but if we lived a suffering-free existence, you might be able to acknowledge the existence of God. You might have a mental knowledge that God is a helper and a comforter, one who provides strength, but you would never actually avail yourself of him or run into this intimate relational knowing of God until you actually need him to be a very present help in your trouble. And so fast forward to the New Testament and the apostles speak of the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings. It's, a, it's almost like a special club, uh, a bond that's created. The fe- like think of the fellowship of the ring or a, a medical fellowship. You're bound together with other people in an intimate way. There's a kind of relational bond and friendship with Jesus that you and I enter into by suffering. And it's important to clarify, it's not that our objective position changes. It's not like you're kind of saved by Jesus if you have an easier life and you're extra saved and super saved by Jesus if you have a harder life. I'm not talking about that. But some of us subjectively have really, when it comes down to it, a transactional relationship with Jesus. He's just a cosmic math equation to us. I believe some things about him. He saves me. End of transaction. As Dane Ortland, though, writes in Gentle and Lowly, Jesus is so much more than a saving formula. He's a saving person. He's a saving person. He's a savior who loves you, who loves you, and who is the ultimate fulfillment and the ultimate embodiment of God's steadfast covenantal love. 
The way that you and I avail ourselves of fellowship and intimacy with Jesus, the way we actually get to know him and not just doctrinal or theological points about him is we suffer. That's how we actually really get to know Jesus in this way. Suffering is a unique and powerful path to deeper communion with Jesus. And so in the one sense, of course, we don't want to suffer. Of course, we're not excited about experiencing the, the brokenness of this world and the evils that are part of this world. But like this afflicted man, when suffering comes, we start to recognize it as an invitation into this, into this fellowship, into this deeper communion. And in a completely counterintuitive and completely countercultural way, we even start to rejoice in our suffering because this invitation is part of it. We get to sing things like we sang in Jesus, I, my cross is taken. Come then, disaster. Why? Because it actually will invite us into a more deeper communion with Jesus himself. So perhaps you can think of a time when you've actually seen this play out in your life. Uh, And I would encourage you to take time to reflect on that even this week as you have opportunity. One that came to mind uh, for me this week uh, is actually when I was a freshman in high school. Real formative year for me in my life. Uh, Up to that point, sports, athletics had consumed a ton of my life. Uh, It was very central to my identity. uh, But an injury in the start of that freshman year left me sidelined from sports for, for basically the whole school year. Uh, And because freshmen are really mature and they really know how to keep pursuing relationships with people even when they don't see them all the time, that also meant a loss of a lot of relationships and friendships. I got real isolated in a hurry. It was a real loss of of identity, of sense of identity for me in that year. Now on the grand scale, uh, this is not massive suffering. Uh, This is not the kind of trauma that some people experience in their lives and some of you have experienced in your lives. But it brought me as a 14-year-old, about as low as I'd ever been up to that point. And as I look back on that, uh, I believe that I was a Christian before all that played out. I think I had genuine saving faith in Jesus. So it wasn't that through these, this experience, my objective position with God changed. But over the course of those months, that freshman year, my relationship with Jesus absolutely changed. Instead of a, a powerful but distant, sovereign kind of being, I actually started for the first time in my life to experience Jesus as a friend, as a companion, as a present help, even what the psalmist said there. And I began to see that there was actually a different kind of relationship with Jesus held out to me than I'd ever known before up to that point. So I want to ask you to consider this morning, have you known fellowship with Jesus like this? And take some time this week to reflect on, if that's the case for you, how that happened in your life. I'm confident you will find that a ton of it happened not by the the commitments to spiritual disciplines you made, as good as those are, not by your church attendance and your Bible reading, as good as those are. I'm confident you will find that a lot of that fellowship with Jesus came through suffering in your life. Recognize the invitation that suffering is into fellowship, into deeper communion with him. Fourth, fourth, Suffering is an invitation to faithfulness. An invitation to faithfulness. Now, in the book of Lamentations, suffering, the suffering they're experiencing, it's the result of sin. It's the result of sin. Israel turned away from their exclusive devotion, their worship of the one true God, and they started to worship idols. And so the destruction of Jerusalem and their exile into Babylon, that's a consequence of their sin. 
It's really important for us to say, though, not all the suffering we experience is the result of our sin. Sometimes we suffer as the result of someone else's sin. And other times we suffer because at the fall, back in Genesis chapter 3, humanity's sin, Adam and Eve's sin, plunged the world into ruin. And so sin has ever since corrupted God's good world, and we continue to experience all kinds of ripple effects of that. But regardless of why we're suffering, whether it's our fault, so to speak, or not, suffering holds out an invitation to faithfulness. It tests our faithfulness when we suffer, and it also provides us an opportunity to grow in faithfulness. And that's why here in verse 27, this afflicted man writes, it is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. The yoke that he's describing there, the burden of suffering placed upon our our necks has a good and necessary purpose in our lives. What is it? What is it? Well, for one, it humbles us. It humbles us. And especially in our youth, he's talking about how it's good for this to happen when you're young. In our youth, we desperately need to be humbled. Without that, we are way way too inclined to think that we're invincible when we're young. We're way too inclined to think ourselves independently strong and capable uh, and to think of ourselves way more highly than we ought. And so suffering, when it comes into our lives, and if it comes immensely enough, it doesn't just knock us off our pedestal, it takes a chainsaw to the pedestal itself. It's really hard to talk about how incredible and how invincible you are when verse 29, your mouth is in the dust. It's kind of hard to be bragging and arrogant when your mouth is in the dust. In my work with, uh, with church planters, men who are considering planting new congregations, new churches, we actually won't approve someone to plant a church until we hear them talk about how they've suffered in their life and how they've failed in their life. And that's because we want to know that there has been some painful kind of growth that they've had to experience, that there's been some humility formed in them through the suffering and the failures that they've walked through. But it's more than just humility that God is after in our suffering. He's not just trying to bring us low. He's after faithfulness. And whether it's the result of our sin or not, any kind of suffering we go through exposes sin in us. Even if it's not the the consequence of our, even if we're not suffering because we sinned, the suffering exposes sin. It exposes parts of our lives that are out of step, out of conformity with the image of Jesus. And as we see those parts, we're invited to pursue faithfulness in those places. The Bible uses a a couple different images to describe this. Uh, Gold or silver being heated up to an intense temperature, purified with fire. Another image that the Bible uses is wheat being sifted. In each case, what's left behind, what remains, is more pure, more true, more faithful than it was before. In Psalm 119, the psalmist puts it this way. He says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. I think that's why a few centuries later, this afflicted man in Lamentations 3 can actually write in this moment, it's good to bear the yoke. It's good to bear the yoke. Now, I really hope you're hearing in this an important difference. I'm not saying that when you suffer, you should assume that it's punishment for your sin. That is sometimes the case. 
Sometimes we suffer as a consequence of our own sin, but often that is not the case. And some of us are kind of like Job's friends. If you're familiar with the story of Job, some of us are like Job's friends. We always have to solve the puzzle of why we're suffering. What did we do or what did someone else do that God might be punishing us for? And that's why this bad thing is happening. Some of us are like Jesus' disciples playing the blame game when they meet this blind man. They come across this blind man and they say, well, Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? It's got to be one of them. In both cases, the suffering there was not the consequence, was not the result of their sin. So rather than assigning blame, rather than trying to solve the puzzle all the time of why you're suffering, learn to see suffering as an invitation to faithfulness. And whether you can see that you're maybe directly responsible for it or not, pay attention to what suffering is exposing in you? How is, it, how is it showing you that you've actually got some deep selfishness that you didn't see before, some pride, some entitlement? You've got some lack of love for other people, whatever it might be. Ask yourself where God is inviting you to be more conformed to the image of Jesus when suffering exposes those things. Let's do one more. Let's do one more. Fifth and finally, suffering is an invitation to see the heart of God. An invitation to see the heart of God. In my opinion, verses 31 through 33 are some of the most remarkable words in all the Bible. Some of the most underrated, remarkable words. Dane Ortland actually devotes a whole chapter to them in Gentle and Lowly. And so if you didn't get a chance to read that, I would encourage you to, to go back and do that. But without dividing God against himself, God is one. He's not separate parts. But without dividing God against himself, Lamentations 3 reveals there are actually some things that come way more naturally out of the heart of God than others. That there's actually a difference in what God, how God acts and some things that come from the heart and some things there by, by, by implication that, that don't. So God does cause grief, he says. Though he grieves, where is that? Verse 32, though he cause grief. And the, the, the writer here in Lamentations 3 is saying, the grief doesn't come from some other ultimate source. It's not like there's equal opposite forces, a yin and a yang competing for the world. The grief ultimately comes from God, but so is compassion from God. And God does afflict. The destruction of Jerusalem, in that destruction, he is afflicting severely. But what he says there in verse 33, God does not afflict from his heart, from his will, from his desire. His heart is steadfast love. His heart is mercy, this author of Lamentations is saying. His heart is grace. Jonathan Edwards uh, gets a really bad rap in a lot of circles, at least in North America. Uh, if we know anything about Jonathan Edwards growing up in, in our schools and things like that, what we know of Jonathan Edwards is he's the guy who wrote Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And we have this impression of Jonathan Edwards that he just is like a hellfire and brimstone kind of guy. Uh, he actually wrote a lot more than Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And he wrote a lot more about the heart of God and about our hearts and our emotions, the religious affections, as they're called. For example, Jonathan Edwards writes this, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways that, they may not, that he may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. And then here's the key line. He is a God that delights in mercy and judgment is his strange work. He delight, the scripture never describes God delighting in judgment. 
He delights in mercy. He does judge. That is his work too. But I love the terminology. It's his strange work. And this means, friends, that our suffering is an invitation to trust the heart of God. And to over many years, let our assumptions about who he is fall away and be replaced by his insistence on who he actually says he is. He is behind our suffering. He is behind our affliction, but he is not afflicting us from the heart. He is afflicting when that happens because through the affliction, he means to show even more compassion and steadfast love to you. He means to display even more of his goodness. And not just like you're the the cog in a machine of God's goodness where he'll display goodness to everybody else, but a couple people have to fall on their sword for that to happen. He means to display even more of his goodness to you through suffering. That will not be easy to see when you suffer. But blurry as it might be, that is God's heart for you in your suffering. His heart is for you and with you. And the truly hopeful news, friends, is that not only is his heart with you, but God himself is with you in your suffering. Always. He has not and he never will abandon you. He will not cast off forever, as this author says. You see, years before Babylon laid siege to Jerusalem, God had put it into the mind of a prophet named Isaiah to actually write to a community that he would never see and know, a community years in the future, that future exiled community. Even before God brought about this affliction that Lamentations describes, God promised his presence with his people in the midst of it. And he wrote through the prophet Isaiah, fear not, Isaiah 41, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Or a couple chapters later, Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, because you will, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. Like all of the promises of God, friends, these promises find their fulfillment, find their yes and amen in Jesus. And Jesus is, quite literally, God with us. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is God who took on flesh, refusing to remain distant. Jesus entered into the fullness of our suffering, the fullness of our affliction, and took it upon himself. And so even if you and I had none of these other invitations that we've considered today, even if there were no other evidences of God's goodness to sufferers, we would have the ultimate goodness of his presence with us. Jesus is God with us. Because he is, because he is, may you come to know and to trust the goodness of God. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gift of your word. And we bless you especially for passages like this that are incredibly hard and incredibly hopeful. And we ask that we might learn through not only this afflicted man, but but centuries and centuries of afflicted men and women that have pursued hope and faithfulness to you in the midst of immense suffering, that we would learn to trust your heart and to trust that you are good. We ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the new mercy that you hold out every morning. And we pray that we would help each other see it on the days when it's so hard for us to see it. And we we ask now, even fathers, we prepare to come to this table that we would see the incredible goodness 
of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. That it's not only your heart that is with us when we suffer, but that you came into this world. You came into the suffering and the affliction yourself and you took it upon yourself that we might have new life in you. Pray that as we come this morning, we would see and recognize and repent of the sin that caused this kind of immense suffering for you. But they would also see that by your wounds, we are healed. By your affliction, by your stripes, we are made whole. Give us eyes to see, even as we come now. We pray all that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.